0: I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People constitutional podcasts. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today we return to uh, what seems to be a series, and that is the second installment of Ask Jeff. A few months ago, we tried as an experiment Uh, to invite your constitutional questions, and you submitted them on the web and on Twitter and through every social media channel and through email, and it was uh, enough of a success. We we got up to 60,000 downloads, which was just great, that we've decided to try the second installment and have been collecting your questions over the past couple of weeks, and I'm now ready to answer them. Uh, Posing the excellent questions is our WIZ web strategist, Nakandro Inici. And he will take it away uh, take it away
1: in a contra. Great, Thank you. We will start with some broad questions about the Constitution. The first one is: how does the Constitution speak to the question of being a new citizen who has taken the oath and dual citizenship? Well, let's start with the question of taking the oath, which allows
0: individuals to become what's called a naturalized U.S. citizen. The Constitution speaks directly to the question of a naturalized citizen's rights in Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment, the most litigated uh, provision of the um, Constitution, is uh, central to constitutional law, and Section 1 says the following. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. Now, there's a tremendously exciting constitutional story behind Section 1. Uh, This was designed to overturn the infamous Dred Scott decision, which said that African Americans had no rights which white uh, men were bound to respect. Uh, In the words of Chief Justice Roger Taney, and Section 1 repudiates that uh, idea, By providing uh, that if you're born in the United States or naturalized, you have the full rights of U.S. citizens. Um, Early drafts of Section 1 had actually included uh, the words um, "Indians not taxed." In other words, subject to the jurisdiction thereof meant that you had to uh, be subject to the laws of the U.S. And Indians who uh, were not subject to taxation were not considered subject to the jurisdiction uh, thereof. So that's a different category. Uh, But um, we do have this distinction between natural born and naturalized citizens. So naturalized citizens are supposed to be treated precisely the same as natural born citizens when it comes to freedoms, liberties, and equal protection of the law, which is guaranteed later in Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. There's only a difference when the Constitution makes a specific distinction between naturalized and natural born citizens. And that distinction occurs um, in Uh, Article 2 of the Constitution, which uh, says the following, and I'm just flipping through my pocket Constitution here, looking at Article 2, which specifies the powers of the President, and the uh, Article 2 explicitly says, no person except a natural-born citizen or a citizen of the United States at the time of the adoption of this Constitution shall be eligible to the office of President. Uh, so with the exception of that constitutional distinction, no difference between naturalized and natural-born citizens. You also asked about dual citizenship. The Constitution makes no reference to dual citizenship, and although the oath of citizenship involves a renunciation of foreign allegiances, the U.S. does uh, welcome uh, dual citizenship. Uh, and in fact, the Supreme Court, in a case called Afroim versus Rusk, decided in 1967, decided that a U.S. citizen's participation in a foreign election is not grounds for the loss of U.S. citizenship. There has to be a clear intent to renounce U.S. citizenship before you can lose uh, citizenship. And Justice Hugo Black wrote the following. He said that the 14th Amendment can most reasonably read as defining a citizenship, which a citizen keeps, unless he voluntarily relinquishes it a clunky sentence from Justice Black, who usually was a beautiful writer. He went on to say, once acquired, this 14th Amendment citizenship was not to be shifted, canceled, or diluted at the will of the federal government, the states, or any governmental unit. And in fact, President Carter relied on the Ephroim case in concluding that agreements with other nations limiting the possibility of dual citizenship were unenforceable.
1: Does the Constitution grant Americans rights, or does it limit what the government can do?
0: It's a great question, and it goes to the heart of the social
1: compact theory that was uh, at the core of the thinking
0: of the framers of the Constitution. So the constitutional framers were marinated in social contract theory, in the philosophy of thinkers such as John Locke and Francis Hutcheson, and Jean-Jacques Burlamacchi. These are the pillars of the Scottish Enlightenment. And, and these thinkers uh, believed that the government does not uh, grant rights, um, but it is structured and limited so that the inherent or natural or God-given rights of citizens are, are protected rather than threatened. So here in a nutshell is uh, social compact theory, and you find this uh, in the Declaration of Independence, which contains the entire theory of American government in its uh, famous uh, paragraph about the unalienable rights of Americans. But the framers believed that we're born in a state of nature. And in the state of nature, we have certain fundamental inherent or God given rights. Um, And some of these rights are unalienable. That means we can't surrender them to government, even if we want to. For example, the right to worship God, according to the dictates of conscience, is an unalienable right because people's religious beliefs or lack of beliefs are the product of reason and thoughts operating on external sensations, and we can't turn that over to government, even if we wanted to. On the other hand, other natural rights are alienable in the sense that we can surrender to government the temporary safekeeping or control over them in order to ensure greater security and safety of the rights that we've retained – for example, giving the government a monopoly on punishing crime or on taking life through our criminal law is a way of ensuring that mob rule doesn't threaten our security and safety. Uh, So that, in a nutshell, is why um, many framers, such as James Madison, initially believed that no Bill of Rights was necessary and that indeed enumerating rights might be dangerous because Um, government had no powers except those that it was explicitly granted by individuals, um, and when government became subversive of the purposes for which it was established, namely to protect our rights rather than menacing them, that citizens had not only the right but the obligation to alter and abolish it, and the right to alter and abolish government itself was considered an unalienable natural right, and it's uh, mentioned in the Declaration of Independence and codified in the Constitution in Article 5, which provides for Amendment. So Madison worried initially that if you listed the rights we have, then people might assume that if a right wasn't listed, it wasn't protected. But in the face of an outcry from anti-federalists and from uh, demands by state ratifying convention, Madison changed his mind and came to endorse a bill of rights as uh, helpful uh, for ensuring uh, greater uh, security and safety of the rights that are retained. But he insisted uh, on including the Ninth Amendment to the Constitution which says explicitly, I think I can do it by memory, but I want to get it exactly right. So I'm going to look at my pocket constitution and uh, read the Ninth Amendment, which says, the enumeration in the constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. And that wonderful language, retained by the people, is an explicit reference to natural rights theory, that when we move into a state of nature and surrender temporary safekeeping over our alienable natural rights, we retain Uh, the unalienable rights. Um, And when government menaces those rights, then we have to alter and abolish it. It's interesting, there's a big debate today over the meaning of the Ninth Amendment. Robert Bork, the uh, the late Robert Bork, uh, uh, who was unsuccessfully nominated to the Supreme Court, had said, we don't know what the Ninth Amendment means, and we should treat it as if there were an inkblot on the Constitution, basically ignore the Ninth Amendment. And that's not a convincing rule of construction, because the Ninth Amendment was a very important uh, reminder in Madison's mind not to assume that if a right wasn't written down, it wasn't protected. On the other hand, the Ninth Amendment wasn't a blank check for judges, for example, to make up whatever rights they believed are fundamental. The framers of the Constitution had a lot of consensus about which rights were natural, which were alienable, and which were unalienable. And it was a pretty limited set, and most of them are, in fact, enumerated in the Bill of Rights. They included, as I mentioned, the right to worship God according to your conscience, the right to alter and abolish government, um, and uh, rights of speech, which were considered an alienable uh, natural right, uh, as well as the right uh, uh, codified in the Due Process Clause not to be deprived of life, liberty, or uh, property without uh, due process. Uh, So that is um, a long way of, of saying uh, uh In response to a great question on one of my favorite topics that the Constitution does not grant American rights; it merely uh codifies and recognizes explicitly uh rights that the framers believed were natural or unalienable uh but it does limit what the government can do by uh ensuring that the federal government is a government of uh limited powers uh and uh that uh, states retain powers that are not explicitly granted to the federal government. And that is, of course, um, signaled in the Tenth Amendment. And this is the last one I'll read in response to this great question, uh, which says that the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states, respectively, or to the people.
1: Could you talk a little more about uh, the limits on the federal government? Where does the federal government's power end and the power of the states and we, the people, begin?
0: It's a very hard question in the sense that it's a very hotly contested question. This was the question at the center of the debate over the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. And remember that during the oral arguments in the Affordable Care Act decision, the Solicitor General, Donald Verrilli, was asked by several justices what are the limits of federal power? If we say that the federal government has the power to mandate health insurance, doesn't that mean that it could mandate uh people uh to buy uh health uh, to, to buy gym memberships or broccoli, Justice Ginsburg famously called this the broccoli horrible and if they can do that, what can't they do? And uh at the oral argument the solicitor general didn't really squarely answer the question. He basically said, well, Congress would never do that, or if it did, it would be unpopular. You know, People would vote out the Congress people. And all, uh, lots of Monday morning quarter, constitutional quarterbacks, uh, basically every law professor in America is one, um, tried after the oral argument to come up with a, a better answer. What are the limits of federal power? And one of the interesting answers that was proposed i wonder if you find it uh, convincing it it's a bit fancy but quite creative uh, goes along the following lines this is proposed by uh scholars uh uh a range of scholars so i won't i won't single out a, a single theorist although jack balkin uh, in his excellent blog balkinization uh, helped to um spell it out the argument goes the following the framers believed that the federal government had the power to act on questions where the states had collective act- action problems. In other words, they they couldn't organize themselves enough to act in concert. They were very concerned by the failures of the Articles of Confederation where the government was so weak, the central government was so weak that it couldn't pay war debts or suppress debtor rebellions such as Shays' Rebellion. So that's why Congress has certainly granted the power to um, uh or organize an army, uh, for example, or or call out the uh, militia. Um, So the argument went, when uh, health insurance is an area in which there's a collective action problem because if only one state acts to uh, create um, health insurance, as Massachusetts did before uh, the Affordable Care Act was endorsed, that state might become a magnet. People would rush to it because they'd get a better deal, and this would overwhelm the state coffers and would make a a national uh, solution difficult. So therefore, the argument went, it's necessary for the federal government to mandate health insurance because if it doesn't, everyone's premiums will go up, uh, $1,000, Congress estimated, and the states can't solve this problem on their own. Um, That's one proposed answer. That's a rather expansive view of federal authority, and it was a way of trying to defend the health care mandate without saying that Congress's powers are unlimited. Now, of course, many people take a much more limited view of congressional power, and constitutional libertarians and uh, distinguished members of the uh, Senate, uh, such as Senator Mike Lee and uh, Ted Cruz and, and others, really say that unless a power is explicitly enumerated... Congress can't authorize it. They, they take the view that President Lincoln did when he issued the famous spot resolutions challenging uh, that uh, people point to the spot where uh, Mexico had crossed uh, the border to attack the U.S. Um, in order to justify war. So um, the libertarian or, or, or view is show me the provision. And unless the provision is explicitly spelled out, in Article One of the Constitution, which specifies the powers of Congress, uh, then Congress can't exercise it. I guess, like Goldilocks, of course, there's a middle position too between the view that Congress's powers are, you know, virtually unlimited unless there's some really strong collective action pr- pr- problem, and the view that you got to point to the specific provision. And the moderate views would point to the Necessary and Proper Clause of the Constitution, which John Marshall uh, relied on in upholding the Bank of the United States, which James Madison thought was uh, unconstitutional because it couldn't be justified by an explicit congressional uh, constitutional uh, power. And Marshall said that if, if something is uh, necessary and proper to carry out the enumerated powers, then it's an implicit power and Congress can exercise it. And that's why it was okay to charter the bank. So that's not to say that uh, the Congress's powers are unlimited. You do have to be able to link it to an enumerated power, but the power doesn't have to be explicitly enumerated to be exercised. Um, I'll just end this good question by quoting from the fine introduction to one edition of our National Constitution Center pocket constitution, the one that I'm holding, and it's written by my friends in National Constitution Center affiliated scholars, Akilah Marr and Doug Kamek. They say... We are a nation of dual sovereigns. The federal government is given specific responsibilities to coin money, raise armies, and regulate interstate and foreign commerce, for example. But as Madison reflected, these powers are, quote, few and defined. Uh, Those which remain in the state governments are numerous and indefinite. That's the end of the Madison quote. And Kamek and uh, Amar conclude, this vertical division of authority reflects the healthy variation and diversity
1: of the American people. Let's dig more deeply into uh, a few different amendments with this question. Did the passage of the 19th and 26th Amendments have any effect on Section 2 of the 14th Amendment?
0: Great question. So first, let's read Section 2 of the 14th Amendment. Um, In the earlier question, we read Section 1, which is the one that gets all the attention and tends to be litigated, and that's the sexy amendment because it includes the Equal Protection and Due Process Clauses, which are at the heart of American constitutional litigation. But Section 2 was, to the framers of the 14th Amendment, the most important one, because they were concerned about protecting their seats. Basically, Reconstruction Republicans are concerned that the newly admitted southern states, which are readmitted to the Union, uh, and, and basically at gunpoint, because they had to ratify the 14th um, uh, amendment in order to be readmitted to the union. So it's not exactly a, an course choice. But they were worried that the new southern states would deny African-Americans the right to vote, but still count them uh, as three-fifths of a person for purposes of apportionment, as the infamous three-fifths clause of the Constitution allowed, and therefore that white Democrats would um, take Congress and the Republicans would lose their seats. So that's why the Reconstruction Republicans included Section 2, which uh, provides the following. When the right to vote at any election for the choice of electors for president or vice president of the United States, representatives in Congress, the executive and judicial officers of a state, or the members of the legislature thereof, is denied to any of the male inhabitants of such state and citizens of the United States, or in any way abridged, Except for participation in rebellion or other crime, the basis of representation therein shall be reduced in the proportion which the number of such male citizens shall bear to the whole number of male citizens 21 years old, years of age in such states. Wow, a clunky sentence, not uh, easy to read, but the gist of it, as you heard, is that um, if Southern states do this and they deny male citizens the right to vote, then their apportionment in Congress is accordingly reduced. Section 2, in addition to being really important to the Reconstruction Republicans, was terribly uh, disappointing to advocates of women's suffrage because it introduced for the first time the word male into the Constitution. The original Constitution didn't explicitly disenfranchise women, although uh, women were not granted uh, the right to vote. Um, And uh, the 14th Amendment, which guarantees equal protection and due process and prohibits, uh, you know, says there's going to be this reduction in apportionment if Southern states deny the right to vote, did not extend the right to vote to African-Americans. It took the 15th Amendment uh, ratified um, in uh, 1870 to grant African-Americans the right to vote. So basically the Reconstruction Republicans don't have the votes to explicitly make the right to vote a constitutional right uh, when the 14th amendment was ratified in 1868 but they do say you know what southern states if you if you uh do this and disenfranchise your male citizens uh who are african american you're going to suffer the political consequences women suffrage advocates um in, object that this introduces a hated word of caste caste into the constitution and they're furious by by about this it took the ratification of the 19th amendment uh uh, which turns uh, 100 in the year 2020, and we're celebrating that anniversary at the National Constitution Center, to grant women the right to vote. The 19th Amendment says the right to vote uh, shall not be denied or abridged on account of sex. And then the 26th Amendment extended the right to vote to citizens 18 years of age and older. And the 26th Amendment is ratified in 1971. So the question asks... Did the passage of the 19th and 26th Amendments have any effect on Section 2? Uh, I I suppose they did in in this sense. Um, uh, If uh, a a state were hypothetically to deny uh, women the right to vote, that would be unconstitutional and prohibited by the 19th Amendment, and you wouldn't reach the question of whether Apportionment in, Congress, uh, in, in apportionment in Congress should be reduced. It would just be flatly unconstitutional. By the same token, uh, the 15th Amendment in some way superseded uh, Section 2 of the 14th because when the 15th Amendment granted African Americans the right to vote and said that states can't deny or abridge it, then there was no need for the penalty clause of uh, Section 2 of the 14th Amendment uh, to kick in. Uh, the denial would simply be unconstitutional. Uh, So a long way of saying that uh, although the 19th and 26th Amendments certainly haven't been uh, litigated uh, in the context of Section 2 of the uh, 14th Amendment, uh, they, like the 15th Amendment, happily uh, rendered its penalty clause uh, obsolete. Uh, Maybe the final thing to note is that Section 2 is rarely litigated, and when it is today, the litigation usually involves questions of felons disenfranchisement um, and doesn't obviously involved, uh, happily, uh, the penalty clause that would kick in uh, were African Americans denied the right to vote, um, a denial prohibited by the 15th
1: Amendment. Let's move now to application of the Constitution, if you will. Uh, We'll start off with a, a hypothetical of sorts. Does the government have the right to enforce a national day of worship And if the government tried to mandate such a day, what would happen?
0: Uh, Great question. And the relevant constitutional provision is the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. So let's read that. My pocket constitution is getting a workout today. Uh, And I'm just looking for the first amendment because I want to get it exactly right. And here it is. It says that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That those are known as the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise clauses of the First Amendment, and the Establishment Clause is most relevant here. What was the original meaning of the Establishment Clause? There's a fascinating uh, bit of uh, historical uh, r- interest in the history of the Establishment Clause, and scholars such as Akilah Amar uh not only a friend of the constitution center but my dear friend and first constitutional law teacher he he was my uh law teacher in law school and kindled my love for the constitution so i'm always uh grateful to him for for that um and his scholarship suggests that the establishment clause might better be thought of as an anti-disestablishment clause and here's the way it works basically at the time of the framing several states had established religions like congregationalism or Unitarianism in uh, New England, states like Connecticut and Massachusetts. So the framers are concerned that Congress not establish a national church because they worried that that would disestablish the state churches. So far from imposing an impenetrable wall between church and state, the established clause is basically telling the federal government, hey, don't come in and make... Uh, congregationalism, the national religion, because that would make it impossible for uh, Connecticut to be Unitarian. So um, viewed as an anti-disestablishment clause, the establishment clause, uh, Amar and Justice Clarence Thomas, who cited uh, Keel's work sympathetically, sympathetically have argued, um, doesn't incorporate against the states. So here we're getting a little technical, but the The original Bill of Rights applied only to Congress. It didn't apply to the states, although James Madison had unsuccessfully proposed an amendment that he thought the most important in the original list that would have prohibited the states as well as the federal government from abridging the free exercise of uh, religion and infringing other basic rights like free speech. But that amendment didn't pass. It took the passage of the 14th Amendment, which we've talked about several times today, to incorporate or apply the various provisions of the Bill of Rights against the states, Uh, the framer of the 14th Amendment, the the James Madison of Reconstruction, John Bingham, uh, the subject of a good new biography by Gerald Magliocca who came to the Constitution Center uh, last fall and you can find it in our video uh, library on YouTube and online. John Bingham had wanted to incorporate the Bill of Rights through the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment, but the Supreme Court in its infamous slaughterhouse decision basically read the Privileges or Immunities Clause out of existence, uh, and as a result, it was through the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment that the provisions of the Bill of Rights were incorporated against the states, uh, starting um, uh, in the early 20th century uh, in free speech cases and culminating by the 1960s with most provisions of the Bill of Rights being incorporated against the states with the exception of the Third Amendment's prohibition on quartering soldiers in the home and the civil jury provisions of the Seventh Amendment and the bail provisions of the Eighth Amendment. But most of the uh, provisions of the Bill of Rights, including the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, have been incorporated against the states. But Amara and Justice Thomas said that that's a mistake, that basically viewed as an anti-disestablishment clause of First Amendment Uh, establishment clause shouldn't incorporate. However, I think that's interesting, but it's a minority view. Um, The the establishment clause has been incorporated. So back to the question, could Congress establish a day of worship? Uh, The argument, the answer uh, as as is so often the case uh, when it comes to the Constitution is it depends. It depends which view of the establishment clause you embrace. On the current court, there are Uh, I would say, three approaches to the Establishment Clause. There are the religious supremacists uh, 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 who believe that the government can't establish an official state religion, and it can't favor one religion over another, but it can support or endorse religion in general. So according to this view, uh, championed by Justice Scalia, among others, uh, school prayer is fine, If it's non-denominational, if it doesn't favor one religion over another, it's okay uh, for for the state to support religious expression in general. Um, Then there are the strict separationists, and Justice Ginsburg, I think, would be the most prominent of these, who believe that uh, the government can't favor religion over non-religion and vice versa, and any public endorsement of religion, such as school prayer Uh, or certainly a national day of worship would be impermissible. And then there are the partisans of religious neutrality. This is the most nuanced position, and it basically holds that uh, private religious choice uh, expression is fine and public religious expression is not permissible, and the trick is identifying what's public and what's private. So according to this view of the partisans of religious neutrality, uh, school vouchers are fine. Because the government provides the money but the individual decides whether to take it to a religiously affiliated school or to a non-religiously affiliated school. It's private choice that determines the destination of the funds. Um, I think the religious supremacists would say that if Congress simply declared uh, on Bill of Rights Day, December 15th, uh, there shall be a day of worship and people may um, express obeisance to the Almighty. Uh, That would be okay, as long as it wasn't coerced. If you weren't forced to worship at gunpoint, Congress could issue a general proclamation saying that we're a religious nation and this is a day to to reflect on religion. The separationists would reject this view and would say that it's uh, a violation of the Establishment Clause. And the neutralists would reject it as well, I think, because it would be a clear uh, expression of public rather than private religious choice. As you dig down into the hypothetical, uh, I think even the Supremacists would get off the boat if, as the question suggests, um, the government tried to enforce a national day of worship where, where, where people were, uh, in fact, required to, to worship uh, on uh, pain of whatever flogging or something like that. You know, the, the justice uh, that would be too much for for, for the supremacist justices. But um, if it were voluntary, it would be okay with them fascinating question these these church state questions are being uh, avidly litigated at the moment there was that uh, important town of greece decision this last term that we had a good national constitution center podcast on involving legislative prayer or prayer offered before legislative sessions which was uh, upheld by the court and there's some blockbuster religion cases coming up next year as well so we'll continue to discuss the meaning of the establishment clause
1: Why is it that politicians are exempt from certain laws? Put another way, doesn't equal protection, quoting from the 14th Amendment again, mean equal enforcement for all citizens regardless of position?
0: Well, as it happens, the Constitution does explicitly give members of Congress a degree of legal immunity. Article 1, Section 6 reads uh, as follows, they, that is members of Congress, shall in all cases, except treason, felony, and breach of the peace, be privileged from arrest during their attendance at the session of their respective houses, and going to and returning from the same, and for any speech or debate in either house, they shall not be questioned in any other place. This is known as the speech and debate clause. And why was it passed? Well, the framers were especially concerned about the ability of the president or other individuals to intimidate legislators by threatening a lawsuit whenever there was a disagreement. So they built in this constitutional protection for anything that's said or done as part of a legislator's service in Congress. Once they've left office, though, uh, representatives are fair game for lawsuit. Uh, Congress has acted uh, at times to end these exemptions. Uh, For example, after the Republicans took the Congress in 1994, Congress passed what was called the Congressional Accountability Act, which forced legislators to comply with a bunch of laws, including the Family and Medical Leave Act and the Americans with Disabilities Act, laws from which they'd previously been exempt. More recently, members weren't barred from insider trading, but after CBS News highlighted that issue, the loophole was filled in 2011. Still, there are lots of exemptions that remain, uh, including the Freedom of Information Act, whistleblower protections, and workplace record requirements that monitor age discrimination. Uh, All of these are laws from which uh, members of Congress remain exempt. Uh, One last thing, there is a popular misconception that members of Congress are exempt from the Affordable Care Act, and the truth is that they're not exempt. Uh, The law does require members to buy insurance on public exchanges, But it is also true that members of Congress are treated differently in how they pay for that insurance, and they uh, arguably get a better deal than the rest of us. Thank you for these wonderful questions, and please join us for another session of Ask Jeff in September. We're preparing on October 27th to open an exciting new gallery, displaying one of the 12 original copies of the Bill of Rights, along with rare copies of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And to prepare for this exciting event, we are going to spend September and October in a Bill of Rights festival with programs and symposia and visits from Supreme Court justices. And we hope that you will join us online and at the National Constitution Center. So over the next couple of weeks, please send in your Bill of Rights related questions and I'll do my best to answer them uh, in September. Until then, please join us for the next of our We the People National Constitution Center podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.